Good morning, guys. I know you're wondering what's going on. Well, first of all, let me say to you guys, uh, happy Father's Day. Not that you are necessarily fathers, but do not forget to call your father this weekend. All right. So, uh, but we are going to be actually starting in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you can open it Genesis 1. And I'll tell you guys, some of you guys maybe remember from a few years ago, a series of Citibank identity theft commercials. I don't know if you guys remember some of them. Had all different kinds of them. This is one of my favorite one. A bunch of two, two old ladies sitting there on the couch uh, with bikers who have kind of adopted their identity and are speaking through them. And so I think it's kind of hilarious. Right, but some of you guys may have uh, actually experienced identity theft at some point in your uh, life. I don't know. Uh, statistics say over hundreds of millions of people have experienced some form of identity theft in their time. And maybe it's a social security number that's been taken. Maybe it's a credit card number that's been taken. Maybe it's an online password, or maybe it's even your bank account number. That in some form and fashion, over hundreds of millions of individuals have experienced some form of identity theft uh, in their lifetime. In 2002, uh, some of you guys may have watched it. Uh, the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can was released detailing the real life story of a man named Frank uh, Abagnale. I can never say his last name, all right? Uh, but he was one of the most notorious uh, identity theft criminals that was out there. He impersonated at one point an actual pilot. At another point, he actually impersonated a doctor and then another point, a lawyer. How he did that without killing people, I do not know, all right? Uh, but he would actually end up pocketing over $4 million in counterfeit checks that he cashed on his own behalf through those different companies that he was apparently working for, all right? The FBI would actually eventually catch up with him where they would imprison him, then put him to work for themselves. He would join the FBI, all right? And now he actually has his own criminal financial fraud consulting firm that he, you can be hired out. You can hire him out. He can come help you, all right? Amazing, all right? Some of you guys actually may have known there's a, a company called LifeLock that's out there, all right? Uh, a group that has uh, promised their services to protect your identity, all right? Their CEO is a man named Todd Davis. Some of you guys may remember LifeLock because they often uh, advertise a lot on different radio stations or different TV stations, um, but they're often known for the fact that their own CEO, Todd Davis, actually in their advertisements put his own social security number in the advertisement, all right? Therefore showing how much they could guarantee their services, of course, until his own social security number was taken and used improperly, all right? Uh, but amazing, all right? All these services, all of these movies, all these different things that are all about this one phenomenon going on in our culture today known as identity theft. What I want to submit to you guys this morning is we kind of jump in and talk about a central question, which is this, the search for identity. What I want to submit to you is that every single one of us, not just hundreds of millions of people, all right, but every single one of us is wrestling at some level with the issue of identity. Not necessarily that your identity has been stolen, not necessarily that your social security number, your credit card number has been stolen, but if I were to ask you the question this morning, this, who are you? My question is, what would you say? If you asked yourself the question, who am I? What would you say? For many of us, as we walk through high school, we would answer that question based on how others knew us or how we were, in a sense, trying to establish our glory in high school. For some of you guys, maybe it was a, a high school football player. For some of you guys, it was a cheerleader. For some of you guys, it was academically. For some of you guys, it might have been theater or whatever. That every single one of us was trying to, in a sense, hang our identity on a hook so that others would know us. My question this morning for you is, if I asked you, who are you, what would be your answer? What's the proper answer, all right? Actually, I think for many of us, there's great ambiguity as to what we ought to be saying to that question. Frankly, I think for many of us, even as we walk through college, that's a question that we're asking all the time. Last week, as we kind of walk through and continue to walk through the series, College Matters, we talked a lot about how do I make decisions? What is the will of God? Well, this morning, we're going to come at another issue that I think a lot of us are dealing with, and that's the issue of identity. Who are we? Someone asked you that, how would you answer? What I want to submit to you this morning is how would the scriptures answer that question for you in terms of who are you? What makes you unique? What makes you, you and not him or her? 
How has God created you and made you unique and made you with incredible dignity? That's where I want to go this morning. For us to jump there, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit. And I'll kind of say to you guys as we jump into this topic, I think this topic is a fascinating one. Because I think we and I live in a day in which our culture really has removed the very existence of God. And I think what's really fascinating is when you remove the existence of God from the conversation, then the question of identity becomes really, really hard to answer. That if you and I live in a culture in which God has been removed, then our culture does not really have that many answers that really are that scriptural or frankly accurate as to who we are. Because who we are is very much built around who our creator is. And it's interesting enough as you look societally or sociologically, when you remove God from the equation, not only do we have confusion about our identity as humanity, but also we're going to have one step away from not just confusion about our identity, but actually to all kinds of social injustice. When we don't know who we are or why we are important, then all of a sudden as we look at our fellow man, all of a sudden we don't know how to treat them either. And then we begin to see all kinds of social injustice. There's an incredible linkage from atheism, the absence of God, to confusion about our identity all the way to the issue of social injustice. I'm going to try to link all of these for you this morning, all right? But before we try to do all that, I want to back up and I want to start you very basically in Genesis 1, all right? If you have your Bibles, open in Genesis chapter 1. And as we answer this question, as we jump into this topic, really, we got to start at the very beginning of our Bible as we wrestle with who we are. Genesis 1 is absolutely pivotal to that discussion. Specifically, I want you guys to look at verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1 is the opening creation account and the creation specifically not just of all of the universe, but specifically of man as it comes into verses 26 and 28. Notice what we find Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So creepy. God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 really is probably one of the most key passages for you and I to understand who we are. For you and I to understand the identity of humanity, you and I have to start and really Genesis 1 is the foundation for an answer to that question. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What we're going to see is really, I'm going to give you guys three basic points that I think encapsulate the identity of humanity. The first is this, that we are created in God's image. That really Genesis 1, 26, 28 is absolutely vital that we are created in the image of God. And we're going to delve deeply into what does it really mean to be in the image of God. Let me give you guys a whole different series of options that people will talk about in terms of that concept. But before we kind of dive headfirst into an, an issue and a topic that all kinds of debate has occurred around, I'm going to begin most simply with this. What do we know without a shadow of a doubt from Genesis 1? What is the point of Genesis 1? I think most simply the point is this, that God is creator. And in terms of who humanity is, what we understand is that God is the creator of humanity. And for us to understand who humanity is, its identity, you and I have to begin with the creator of humanity. If you were to wrestle with the issue of who is humanity apart from his creator or apart from the word of the creator, you and I are going to land in a very, very foolish spot with whatever answer we can come up with. Just this week, we, uh, because Marcy and I are amazing parents, all right, best parents in the world, uh, we opened a slip and slide for our kids this week, all right? Uh, Open this thing up because also too, what else do you do when it's 
ungodly hot outside, all right? All I want to do if I'm outside is swim or spray water everywhere. So slip and slide sounded awesome, right? So we open that thing up. We jump into it. Clearly, the, the most easy thing for me to figure out was there's this cushion at the end of the slide so that as people are going, you know, 30 miles an hour down this thing, you got some cushion when you land instead of just a bunch of grass and sticks and trees and cut yourself, right? So I, I aired up the cushion to the slide, all right? But then I began to realize there's this yellow tube that ran along the side of the slide, all right? And so I began to do what I just thought was natural. I take the air tube and begin to try to air up the little slide on the side of it. And some of you are laughing at me because you already know how ridiculous I am, all right? There are little holes all through that little slide, that yellow tube that ran along the side. Not only was that a problem, but I was trying to figure out how do I capture the air inside that part because there's no little like thing to screw in and tighten it, all right? So I'm spending about 30 minutes trying to figure out how do I get the air in, keep the air in, tighten this thing off and close it off. I'm looking on the box. I'm looking at pictures. I am uh, uh, trying to look inside to see if there's any kind of screw or any kind of cap, all right? And so finally, I just kind of throw my hands up. It's been about 30 minutes. I can't actually call anyone. There's actually no instructions because <laughs> I think a four-year-old could put it together apparently, all right? Uh, but I can't figure it out, all right? So finally, some people come over who are helping us out at our house and they're like, no, 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 you idiot. You don't put an air tube here. You put a hose. And then the water blows through. It screws in and blows through and then the hose and water's going everywhere all along the slide so that no one's hurting themselves as they go down. Here's my issue. Aside from some instructions or aside from the ability to call the person who made the stinking slide, I'm left to my own devices trying to figure out whatever I think is best with the slide. Clearly, I wasn't using it properly. When you and I wrestle with the existence, the nature, and the identity of humanity apart from the creator who's given us instructions about his creation, you and I are just as preposterous, right? We can come up with all kinds of answers that we want about the nature, the existence, the identity of humanity, but unless we've consulted the creator, we are running blind on the issue, all right? And what's fascinating from Genesis 1 is not that we just find out that God is the creator, but we also find out this, that as the creator, he's also a mirror. That God is not only a creator for humanity, but he's also a mirror for humanity. For humanity to know who they are, what we find out from Genesis 1, 26, 28, is that humanity has been created in the image or in the likeness of God. That we are not just a creation that's random that God just made from the dust of the earth, but we are a creation that he's made from the dust of the earth that he breathed life into and that he made in some sense like himself. If we don't consult the creator of humanity, if we don't know the creator at all, then we know very little about ourselves. A few weeks ago, Marcy and I got to go to New York City, had a great time. One night or one day, we were actually on Broadway, went to a, a play or a musical deal, and it was really fun. Uh, and it happened to be the same day that apparently like some uh, all-girls high school field trip had occurred, all right? So there's like hundreds of high school girls in this small little theater, all right? And it's us. Uh, and I'm walking through, and it's like crazy. You're trying to squeeze through. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And maybe I'm late to the game, but I noticed something for the first time, all right? Maybe a little late. Hundreds of girls all simultaneously out in the uh, hallways with their iPhone, all right? Not texting, uh, not doing anything on social media, but with their phone in selfie mode, using it as a mirror, all right? All right, I've never seen that before. Not a bad idea, all right? Uh, some, of us, some of you guys are really familiar with the selfie mode, all right, as a mirror. Some of you guys just know the mirror at large. The only reason why you know what you look like is because of a mirror. Imagine life if you never had a mirror or you never had the iPhone selfie mode. Imagine. You would have no idea what you look like. You would have no idea if there's a facial disaster going on before a date, all right? You're just flying blind, all right? That's just life on the highway without a mirror, all right? But here's the whole point. If, in a sense, God is a mirror of humanity, then if you and I don't know God, if you and I know nothing about God, then you and I are walking through life without any sense of a mirror knowing who we are or what we look like. Having no knowledge of God, if you remove God from the equation, then it is like walking through life without a mirror and you have no idea what you look like. 
But knowing God is not just about a superficial sense of what we look like, but it's actually about who we are. That God has created us in his likeness. And as a result, if you and I don't know God, we have no idea who we are. If you remove God from the equation, we're flying blind and we are as preposterous on this whole issue of knowing who we are, what we've been designed for, what we were supposed to be doing with our life as I was with a slip and slide putting air into a tube that has holes in it that should have had a hose with water, right? That's what we do with ourselves when we don't know God and we don't bring God into the equation. Specifically, we've been created in the image of God. And so what I want to do with you guys this morning is give you a little better sense of what does it mean that we've been created in the image of God? If God is not just our creator, but he's also a mirror that shows us exactly in a sense who we are, then I want to kind of wrestle with in what sense is God a mirror? In what sense are we in a likeness of God? In what sense are we in his image? I'm going to give you guys a a few different basic ideas. Here's some very traditional views. I'm going to give you guys four basic views. I'll kind of give you a spoiler alert. The first three I think are wrong, all right? So don't get too excited. You see the first few, all right? And I'll kind of land where I actually think the proper answer is. But many will say the most predominant answer to, hey, what does it mean that we're creating the image of God? Many will say that it relates to some sense of our rational and moral capacity, all right? That what makes you in the image of God, what makes you in the likeness of God is that you share some rational ability and the ability to create and that you have some sense and sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. That many will argue that what it means for you to be in the image of God is that you have some heightened rational ability and some sensitivity to what is actually right and wrong. God bless our little dog, Millie. We love her to death, all right? She's not the brightest tool in the shed, all right? Uh, she's got a great personality with eyes that go this way. Is she in the image of God, all right? Is she, in the, is she in the likeness of God? God has also created her, but is what separates humanity from a dog like Millie our rational ability and our ability to sense right and wrong? Mm, I don't know. Our dog has some sense of right and wrong. She knows when she's in trouble. She'll go running or hide on her bed, all right? So is what makes us in the image of God simply a greater extent of rationality and moral sensitivity? Is that what makes you and I in the likeness of God is just simply an issue of degree of smartness? If so, here's what this idea can go. Bioethicist Peter Singer says this, And I'll tell you, I don't agree with this, all right? This is what he says. The fact that a being is a human being is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, self-consciousness that make a difference. What determines whether someone has the right to life? That question's kind of big in our culture today, right? Is the fact that it's a human being give it the rightness and the dignity to life? Or is it about rationality, autonomy, self-consciousness? What is it that makes you and I in the image of God? And I'm not just speaking about the unborn, right? What about those who have uh, mental handicaps who do not have the same degree of rationality that you and I may have? What about those with Down syndrome? Are they still in some sense in the image of God? Are they less in the image of God? See, when you and I begin to argue about extremes or degrees, you and I begin to get on very, very shaky ground. And I want to submit to you guys, what makes us in the image of God is not some degree of rationality because then you're on very, very slippery ground, ethically speaking. Some will say this, that it's not rational moral capacity. They'll say it's relational capacity. Genesis 1, 26 says, God says, let us, the triune God, let us make God in our image, in our image. Many will say, uh, as God creates a humanity, male and female, that what we were beginning to see in Genesis 1 is that what makes man in the image of God is that he shares some relational or some communal aspect to him. Just as God is a Trinitarian being who shares some element of community in his existence, so humanity shares a communal element to their existence. Does humanity share a communal element in their existence? Yes. 
Is that what makes them in the image of God? No. All right. Uh, some of us will argue, hey, uh, I, I would argue to you guys that most of us already struggle with this issue. <laughs> most of us already attach our identity and our value on our relational and communal status, right? If we have a, a significant other, we feel like we have a greater identity, a greater status to promote. If we're not dating someone, we feel like we should hide or we feel like something's wrong. For some of us, we see marriage as this great arrival that when someone actually has reciprocated love for us for a lifetime, then we actually have value and an identity and a name, but nothing could be farther from the truth. This is where most of our culture moves us, right? Your significance is attached to the number of friends you have on Facebook, your social media status, how many people are following you and liking you. Is that what makes you significant? Is that what shapes your identity? No, no. Some of us have greater relational capacities than others, right? I'm an introvert. Frankly, being in a room with a bunch of people and trying to get to know 100 people is is actually not easy for me, all right? My relational capacity looks different than my wife, for example, all right? Is the significance and is my identity shaped by my relational capacities? Our culture would say yes. I'm going to tell you no. Let me give you guys a third one that is often put forward in terms of what it means to be in the image of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, we'll talk about, uh, hey, you've been created in the image of God, therefore go now and rule on behalf of man. God is the creator, he is the ultimate ruler of the universe, and he's handed his creation off to humanity as a sub-ruler. God hands his sovereignty and his authority over to man, and he says, I want you to rule this created kingdom on my behalf. It's what makes you and I in the image of God, the fact that you and I share a common task with God, the task of ruling. Is that what makes and shapes our identity? Again, what happens if some of us have a greater ability to rule than others? What if some of us have a heightened capacity to rule and some of us do not have a heightened capacity to rule, but we have heightened capacities for other things? Again, over and over again, rational, moral capacity, relational capacity, ruling capacity, all of these things we evaluate often by degrees. Some of us are more inclined to some of these than others. And I'm going to tell you guys, I would argue to you that what makes us in the image of God is not any three of these. All of these are byproducts of the fact that we are in the image of God, but they are not what makes us in the image of God. Because we are in the image of God, we have a capacity to relate and we need one another. (laughs) Because we are in the image of God, we're called to go and rule. Because we're in the image of God, we have a heightened rational and moral capacity because we're in the image of God. But that doesn't mean that's what makes us in the image of God. In fact, I want you guys uh, to flip over to Psalm chapter 8. I think one of the greatest passages about this very topic of what what makes us in the image of God, Psalm 8, all right? If it's none of these things, then what makes us in the image of God? What sets us apart in the creation, all right? Psalm 8. David will be writing, reflecting on the very creation, specifically the creation of humanity, looking at and wrestling with the identity, what makes humanity, humanity. And here's what he says, Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Right? Psalm 8, verse 4. What makes man so significant? What makes him so special, all right? Genesis 1 will say it's because he's in the image of God. Psalm 8 will give us another answer that is synonymous for what it means to be in the image of God. Notice what it says, verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You crown him with glory and majesty. That in the midst of all of the creation, God puts humanity in the square middle of it, gives him incredible opportunity, incredible responsibility, and crowns him with glory and majesty. That what makes you and I in the image of God is that we have been crowned with incredible glory and majesty. I'll put it like this. 
Our identity is in our dignity as bearers of God's glory. That what makes you and I in the image of God, what is that the very foundation of our identity is that we are and we possess incredible dignity as those that are bearing the image of God, the glory of God. God takes his incredible glory and he places it on the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, and he crowns humanity with glory and honor. Is the only one that's in the image of God. That to be in the image of God means that you and I literally, we'll see from the text later on in the book of Revelations, we will literally later on glow. That the very glory of God has been put on humanity, which is why humanity is so unique, so special, and so significant. And no matter of relational capacity, no matter ruling capacity, what makes humanity in the image of God is that it has incredible dignity. The very foundation of our identity is in our dignity. Our identity is in our dignity because we have the opportunity uniquely to bear the very glory of God. That he's put it upon us and we're to go and literally glow and represent and share the very glory of God. All right. Here's what's interesting though. If you take God away, what happens to that dignity and what happens to that identity? If our identity is in our dignity as those that are bearing the very glory of God, if you take God away, there's no glory to bear and then there's no dignity to humanity. That if you take God out of the equation, the very God who's created humanity and put his glory upon humanity, if you remove God from the equation and humanity is just simply the product of evolutionary processes, then you have a humanity that is not bearing the glory of God and therefore has no distinct dignity. And if you remove dignity, then you remove identity. Get that? See the movement? That if you take God out of the equation, then there's no glory to bear for humanity and there's no, therefore no dignity. And if you take the dignity away from humanity, then it has no unique identity within the creation. This is what marks humanity. This is at the very foundation of the identity of humanity. It is in its dignity as the unique glory bearers of God. All right? You're with me? So what do we do with this? All right? Here's the problem, though. For many of us, as we look at our lives, we go, that's nice and all. That's Genesis 1. But there's a lot more Bible after Genesis 1, right? And much of my life doesn't sound anything like that, right? That's all nice, Trey, and nice little fuzzy church world, all right? But what about real life, all right? What's happened? Uh, for many of us, that we can argue and we would attest to the fact that we've been created in God's image, but we've also been disgraced by man's sin. That is, you look at our world, as you look at our own lives, we all would recognize that something has gone wrong. Story broke recently in which uh, a woman who was 28 years old walked into an extension uh, of the Louvre Museum uh, in which she walked in with a black felt tip marker, all right? walked up to a priceless piece of art known as Liberty, or Liberty Leading the People. She takes her black Sharpie marker, walks right up to this incredible timeless piece of art and writes A, E, 9, 11, and a foot long square radius on that priceless piece of art. All right? She was part of a group known as the Architects and Engineers of 9-11 who believe there's a conspiracy about the true creators and uh, culprit people behind 9-11, all right? I don't understand the whole process. All I know is she comes into the Louvre, all right? Writes a giant A, a giant E, 9-11 on a priceless piece of art, all right? Of course, she's immediately arrested because she's absolutely just disgraced this incredible piece of art. And I think for many of us, as we look at our own lives, really what seems to be humanity seems just to be like a piece of art that is under incredible sense of graffiti, Right? That now humanity as sure as heck doesn't seem to be representing this incredible dignity that we're talking about from Genesis 1. Humanity seems to have gone south uh, real fast, real far. All right, why? It's because of this issue known as sin. 
Uh, I'm going to kind of give you guys a definition of sin and understand why this graffiti has come about. If you guys are back in Genesis 3, all right, we looked at Genesis 1. I want you guys to see Genesis chapter 3, all right? Uh, God has created hu- uh, humanity. He's made all these great things, Genesis 1 and 2. He said that it's good, all right? It looks at Adam, who's alone, and says, that's not good because uh, we men need help, all right? Uh, he then uh, creates Eve, says, now that's good. That's real good, all right? Adam says, all right? Genesis 3, though, all right? Uh, Genesis 3, the Satan, uh, the serpent comes to Eve. And I want you guys to notice Genesis 3, verse 5. Notice, we'll pick it up in verse, uh, verse 5. Notice what the serpent says to Eve. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had told Adam and Eve, do not eat. He says that when you eat of it, uh, your eyes will be open. That's true. And then he says, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What, what Satan does to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 on the very heels of the incredible dignity they have in this unique identity as humanity, all right? What he does in Genesis 3 is he comes to humanity and says, look, hey, I know God has said this. Don't trust him. Not only don't trust him, here's what you want to do. You want to be just like him, all right? Uh, Satan appeals to the pride within Adam and Eve. And because of their pride, their desire to be like God, they take the apple from the tree of the knowledge that they were not supposed to eat and they eat it. And the result of that's going to be catastrophic. But ultimately, what is sin? If we were to define sin, how could you and I define sin from Genesis 3 verse 5? I'd say that what sin is, is a glory transfer. That ultimately what humanity was to be about was bearing and representing and displaying the glory of God. Instead, what Adam and Eve do is they take that very glory and they hoard it for themselves and they want to be just like God. No longer reflecting the greatness of God, but wanting to take that glory and reflect their own greatness, making it all about them. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 will say that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. The very glory that he bestowed upon us is the very glory that we've fallen short of. We've fallen short why and how because we have a glory exchange problem. I think it's put really simply in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says this. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man uh, and of birds. Humanity's dignity, humanity's identity was represented and tied to this idea that they were going to take and receive the glory of God and represent him in the midst of the entire creation. And instead of what they do is they say, the glory of God, no thank you. We'll take the glory of man and of birds and of the creation and that's what we'll make our life all about. All right. Like, we don't want this glory. We'll take a lesser glory. And all of a sudden, the identity and the dignity of man is no longer attached to his creator, but it is now attached to the creation to a lesser glory and an exchange of glory that is all about the representation and exaltation of self. All right, that's what sin is. It's all about self, shameless self-promotion. All right, and thankfully that doesn't go on in our world at all today. We're never about shameless self-promotion. If I were to look at your social media feed, there's no shameless self-promotion there, is there, right? Uh, I, I, I would challenge you even just this upcoming week, all right? I would love to challenge you, go back to your social media feed, all right, in the last week to a month, all right, with whatever pictures you've shown, whatever posts that you put up, and I'd say this, what is it about? Is it about, hey, world, look at me. Let me make myself seem important. Like make, let me make my life seem great. Or is it about something different? I ran across this post this week. I thought it was hilarious. Maybe, may your life someday be as awesome as you, as you pretend that it is on Facebook, right? <laughs> Often for every single one of us, there is this, in a sense, this construction of an image and a perception on social media or in life that frankly is so far different than reality for most of us, right? Why is it we want to so perfectly doctor our image on social media? Why do we so care what people think of us? Are we so 
bent on representing the glory of God, or are you really building life and social media around us in a way to make ourselves seem great and significant? Have we exchanged the glory of God for a glory that is all about man and ourselves? Sometimes I'd say our social media betrays us and answers for us really what we're making life all about. That's the definition of sin. That's what sin is all about. It's in a replacement of God on the throne of life for ourselves. It is an exchange of his glory for our own so that the significance of our lives rests on ourselves and not on him. The great folly of that, though, of course, is when our lives rest on the significance of our own selves, they're not very significant at all. When we've changed the, when we've changed the eternal for the temporal, when we've exchanged the, that which is utterly holy and righteous for that which is imperfect ourselves, we come so short of what God intended, which is why Paul says we fall short of the glory of God. We've accepted a lesser glory and we've built our identity, our security, and our significance around that. What are the consequences of that? Uh, where does that lead us? Uh, Genesis 3 tells us as Genesis 3 ends with the fall, the inclusion of sin into humanity's existence, we see that God is going to usher humanity out of the garden. <laughs> He's going to station an angel and a, uh, a flaming sword that's going to guard the entrance to the garden. And now all of a sudden, God, or humanity, God has ushered humanity out of his presence and out of relationship with him. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 will say that the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin, what you and I earn for that glory transfer is death, both physical and spiritual. That every single one of us will physically die at some point and that death is a witness to sin's presence in our lives. But even more significantly, even more powerfully, that death represents in a separation from God himself. That God ushers Adam and Eve out of the garden. And for you and I, Paul will say in Ephesians 2, that you and I are born dead. That we enter into life hostile to God, separate from God. And unless God intervenes, we will spend all of eternity apart from him. But that's the incredible beauty of the gospel and the good news that's going to come. That sure, yes, our identity is in our dignity as bearers of God's glory, but the reality is that human depravity or sin has defaced human dignity. The human dignity, this incredible priceless creation of art, sin comes as graffiti paint all over it, marring its beauty, marring its dignity. But the beauty of what Christ will do is it'll bring about a restoration. But yes, we are created in God's image. We're disgraced by man's sin, but we are restored by Christ's cross. Inherently glorious, defaced by sin, but restored by the cross of Christ. That's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus does on the cross of Christ for you and I, is that he comes and he takes away our sin, removes the penalty of that sin, cleans up the graffiti on the art, and begins to slowly but surely rework that creation. It's fascinating. That woman who comes into that Louvre Museum with a Sharpie marker writes all over this timeless piece of art. Uh, art experts would take the, uh, the art piece down in over two hours, just two hours, they would be able to uh, expertly actually remove the ink mark from the piece of art such that it actually never penetrated the art and was completely cleaned up. You never would have known. And what Christ is going to begin to do with each one of us is not just bring about a change of our guilt statement, all right, of our lives, that we're no longer are we guilty, but we are forgiven. But he's also going to bring about and start a complete reclamation project of our lives in which he's going to slowly but surely bring about a restoration of our lives to the inherent glory that he once had for us from the very beginning. I want you guys to see that in a few passages this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 will say that the wages of sin is death, but the ha- latter half of that verse will say, but the f- free gift of God is eternal life. That what sin gets us is death, but what the free gift of, e- uh, of Jesus Christ gets us is eternal life. 
That what Christ does on a cross is that he dies in our place, that he takes our payment and our sin and our punishment that should have been ours and he takes it out of the way so that you and I can get a different declaration over our lives. No longer guilty, but righteous. Because God, who was a judge, would look upon the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and say that because of the death of his son, the death of his son would be our death. That he would suffer the punishment that should have been ours so that we could be excused and forgiven and given eternal life. Not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that gets us into heaven one day like fire insurance, but that's just the beginning of a process in which God begins to slowly but surely work in our lives, moving us and restoring us slowly but surely to be all that he originally intended us to be. A reclamation process and project that won't ever be finished until we're actually in the presence of God. But what this life is all about is beginning to see that change slowly but surely through life. That we're becoming to be more and more in the image of the one that we were created in all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 3 is the fall, but the rest of Genesis uh, 3 on to the rest of our Bible is about a slow and uh, gradual process in which God moves through human history so that you and I can see change, not just in the life that's going to come, but in this very life. So Jesus will say, this is going to be, I'll give you life and give it to you abundantly. Not just the eternal life that's going to be for all of eternity, but I'll give you abundant life now. I'll begin to work in your life in such a way that you can find freedom, you can find forgiveness, you can find a change in your life so that you become more and more all that I intended you to be from the very beginning. One of my best, our favorite passages on this note is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to end here this morning. If you want to guys flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, flip over to your New Testament. I know we're kind of bouncing around this morning, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at the very last verse of that passage because I think the point there is beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, in verse 18. I'll give you guys just a second to turn there. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is going to be, it's going to show you the beauty of the gospel. That it's not just fire insurance, not just about getting your sins wiped away, but this is what Jesus wants to do with your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We all with unveiled face, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him uh, by, uh, in his death and his resurrection. That we are, we are beholding as in a mirror. There's that mirror imagery again. The glory of the Lord. And that beholding, that exposure leads to a transformation. What kind of transformation? One that we are being transformed into the same image from the original glory that we once had. The glory that's been lost back to the glory that we're going to have in the future. That what's happening right now in our lives is a transition and a transformation from that defamed, defaced glory. That, that graffiti is being slowly but surely lifted and removed so that we can be back to that inherent glory that we had all the way back to Genesis 1. That's where God is moving our life. That's the trajectory. That's the life story that we have if we know Jesus Christ. All have been created in the image of God. Sin mars the entirety of creation. And the cross brings about an invitation so that any and all can be restored again. As we think about this, our identity is in our dignity, but human depravity defaced human dignity. Yet Calvary, the cross, restores human dignity. That's the story of your Bible in many ways, all right? That broad movement, created in the image of God, defaced by humanity's sin, but restored by the cross of Christ so that we would one day be all that God originally intended us to be. How marvelous of a creator. How gracious of a creator that he would give us what we don't deserve and that he would give us a second chance to be all that he originally intended us to be. God doesn't quit quickly on us. 
God is constantly and slowly bearing with us, giving us second chance after second chance so that we can be all that he intended us to be. For some of you guys, I know that your lives may, even this very summer, look like a train wreck, right? You may not at all be what you feel like God intended you to be. Some of you may be striving and working towards that. Some of you may be just devolving and collapsing and internally imploding. Whichever direction you're going, one of the things I want you to hear this morning is that God loves you. (laughs) And your life can be explained by the entrance of sin, not only into your life, but into the entirety of the world. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is that Jesus Christ also entered the world and what one man did on your behalf transfers to all men. That the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ can be yours as well so that your life can be restored just as he's promised. And that's my hope for you guys is that you won't let your past be that which controls you and shapes and marks your identity and your trajectory, but you'll let Christ's past be yours so that his life and his future can be yours as well. Because that's why we're union, we're tied to Jesus Christ, that his death is ours and his life is ours if we know him. I love where 2 Corinthians will go in chapters 4 and 5, and this is where we're going to end this morning uh, with a couple of basic uh, suggestions or challenges. First is this, that the creation of the cross declared that all humans have dig- dignity. That every single one of us, because we are in the image of God, whether we've been defaced by sin or not, that every single one of us has a dignity. Uh, For every single one of us, it is covered over by graffiti. It is covered over by sin, but it is there because it is inherent to our existence. All were created in the image of God. Christ died for all so that any and all could be redeemed if they would only trust in Jesus Christ. So what that means for you and I is that as we step into our world, God has handed us an incredible mission and an incredible opportunity to provide and to speak and to show value where our culture does not. I think one of the greatest things that we'll see in our culture today is an incredible sense of social injustice that we, in many ways, look upon our culture, we look upon different groups of people and we declare some to have honor and some to not have honor. That some have unique capacities, have more honor than others. Some who have no capacity, some that are handicapped or uh, disadvantaged, we, we look away from them or we, in a sense, shame them. What the gospel does for you and I is it calls us to recognize that all have dignity, all have the opportunity to have their dignity restored, and that we're called into the world to represent Christ in a way that brings about a kind of restoration of that dignity to all of creation. I love what uh, Paul will do here in Romans, or sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Pick it up, if you will, with me in verse 14. Notice what Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us if we know Jesus Christ. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that, they might, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That if you know Jesus Christ, the point of your life, the purpose of your life is not about yourself, but it's about him who died for you. And what he wants you to do, you're going to get a picture of in verses 16 and on, when Paul says, therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he has passed away. Uh, The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That if you know Jesus Christ, not only is your life new, but you're given a new rubric, you're given a new standard and a new ruler to declare and to measure the worth of your fellow man. We do not measure the dignity and the value and the identity of humanity based on their capacity in any way, shape, or form. That's not what it's about. That if anyone is in the nature of humanity, then they have inherent dignity because they've all been created in the image of God. And it is our opportunity, it is our responsibility to move into the culture, recognizing and professing that all have dignity, all have opportunity. 
fact, he goes on, he says in verse 18, now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The opportunity, the job that you and I have as we step into our world, first, if we don't know him, it's to be reconciled to him, to know him, to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. If you do know Jesus Christ, then the responsibility you have is to be an ambassador of him, offering and speaking a word of reconciliation to the world that's at large. How does that reconciliation come? It comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so you and I have an opportunity to be ambassadors in two different ways, word and deed. The gospel is a word and deed kind of good news, right? The word of the cross that Christ has died and been resurrected so that he offers life, eternal life to all. And the opportunity that we have as we step into our world is to come with a word of hope and of grace and of good news. It's awesome right now. We have four different teams in East Asia, in Greece, and Africa who are beginning to bring that word of reconciliation to men and women who have never heard it before. I'd love for you guys to be praying for those teams as they finish their mission trips here in the next week and a half. Great opportunity that we have, even though that we're here in College Station, is to be praying for them as they bring the word of reconciliation, the word of grace and hope to those that don't have it, don't have a church on every corner. Opportunity that you guys have is to join with us. Every Wednesday at two o'clock, we join together at Muldoon's and we pray for those trips. We pray for the nations. We pray for these students to come to Christ. And so I'd love for you guys to join us this Wednesday at two o'clock. Come out to Muldoon's. Come pray with us for those mission trips as they finalize and as they finish their summer mission trip experience. God has you here, but you can join with those teams simply by getting to pray with them and pray for them. And so we'd love, for you, we'd love to have you guys come join us. Two o'clock Muldoon's, all right, Wednesday. The other opportunity that you have is to step into your community right now where you are, where God has put you, and to be an ambassador for Christ in word. Uh, to step into your campus, to step into your classroom, to step into your workforce, and to be the actual words of the gospel to those that are in that place. They maybe don't know Jesus Christ at all. They don't know the reconciliation that he offers. It's your opportunity to extend that grace, to extend that message out. Let me challenge you, who do you know that doesn't know Jesus Christ? Are you seeing those opportunities and those relational spheres as a stepping off and as a platform to get to speak the word of reconciliation? Uh, I had an opportunity even this past week, uh, our whole church is doing these backyard Bible clubs. We had 350 kids throughout the community who got to hear the gospel. Uh, some of which who maybe never had heard the gospel before. Many of their parents who brought them who also maybe never heard the gospel before. Awesome opportunity as we stepped as a church into our community to speak the word of the gospel, the word of good news. How are you doing that? How are you declaring the word of the good news? Second of all, how are you declaring the deeds of good news? The gospel is not just word only. That when the gospel comes, it changes all of life. And one of the greatest ways that you can indeed move toward the word of the gospel is by sharing honor and value to those that are often overlooked. One of the great opportunities that we have as a church, one of the great challenges that we have as a church is to be engaged with the poor, to be engaged with the disadvantaged, to be engaged with those that our culture looks away from and deems less honorable. And our movement towards them is not just with the words of the gospel, but is a movement and message that says you are valuable that you have inherent dignity even though our culture is looked away. That where they don't look, we look. Where they don't hear, we hear. And we move toward them. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of God. I want to challenge you as you look in your places and your community this week. How are you declaring the word of the gospel and how are you declaring it in deed as well? In love and in truth. 
uh, in spoken word and in action. That's our heart for you guys. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for um, the beauty of the gospel, that it changes life, that it transforms life. Lord, I thank you that even in the, in the midst of our sin, and even in the midst of our stubbornness and our resistance to you time and time again, that we build life all around ourselves. I thank you that you bear with us, that you're so incredibly gracious and kind and patient with us. I thank you that not only would you create us with incredible dignity, but in seeing humanity's own sin and the way that we would mar that dignity, that you would move back toward humanity, doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves that you would die in our place, extending us grace, extending us forgiveness, extending us life again and moving in us to recreate and to begin to bring about a restoration so that we would be all that you originally intended us to be, that our lives would have significance, our lives would have value, that we would have identity. We wouldn't wrestle with who we are. We know that we've been those created in your image, those that have been redeemed by your cross, those that have incredible dignity just because we are in your image the recipients of your love and of your grace and of your work. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be incredible ambassadors of you, that we'd step into our communities, that we'd step into our classrooms this week, that we'd represent you incredibly well, that we would be those that would bear your glory, that we'd extend your reputation, that we'd extend your grace wherever we step. Lord, help us to have eyes for that. Help us to have eyes for those that are disadvantaged, those that are not seen and not heard. May we move toward them with unique passion Unique purpose, Lord. Lord, we love you. We want to represent you. We want to walk with you. We want to be honoring to you. Help us to know how to do that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.